0: Friends, it's been a little while. Thank you for sticking with me during this slower time while I have been taking a much-needed break from releasing new episodes. It's been a busy fall-slash-winter for me personally with a lot of change, but I'm getting settled into a new home, a new job, and new routines with my daughter's school. I'm also just taking a moment to recognize that it has been an incredible two years of this show. Sometimes I still marvel at how I had the audacity to take this little idea and run with it. It has been wonderful connecting with so many artists and educators, sharing their stories and learning alongside you all. This episode is a special one and will be the last one of 2021. This is a longer version of the presentation I gave at the California Art Education Association conference last month, titled Stories from the Field, a curated selection of conversations around equity in the art classroom. I prefaced the presentation by saying that I am not an expert here, but I have been learning and listening and working to share the advice of those who know more than I do. To share the experiences of those who experience racism firsthand, to share the voices of those who are too often silenced. It was a daunting task to select clips from over 80 hours of conversation to fit into 30 minutes. What I'm sharing here is actually my longer cut, so it's closer to 45 minutes. While there's obviously so much cut from the many conversations these clips were pulled from, it's also still a lot to process. I will link to the Google document where I shared the transcript and artist bios for the final CAEA presentation, which was the shortened version of this episode, so you can feel free to make a copy of that, add notes if it's helpful, I ended with the song that Nisa Floyd recommended, Come Back as a Flower, by Stevie Wonder featuring Sarita Wright. I can't include it here for copyright reasons, but you should go listen to it. Think about Nisa's words of redemption and hope and growth. As I feel our country—maybe the world, I don't know if it feels this way outside of America—but as I feel our country sink further into dogma over democracy, hatred over humanity. It's easy to feel defeated and hopeless. But I do see so much hope in our children. We are on the front lines in more ways than one right now in education. So hold on to that hope. Nurture empathy and love in those young people. And trust them. Trust your kids. Trust your students. Now, I do also want to mention that the next monthly Teaching Artists Lounge meeting is coming up next weekend on December 11th. I would love to see you if you can make it. I facilitate these meetings along with Victoria Fry of Visionary Art Collective. They are usually held on the last Saturday of the month. Uh, this next one will be focused on Teaching for Artistic Behavior, or TAB, in a workshop led by Nicole Mikafous, who shared her journey in episode 73. I'll drop the link in the show notes. And then our January meeting will be another session of mini-artist talks, which have been such a great way to meet more artists. We'll be sharing info soon about signing up to present or attend, so stay tuned on Instagram at Teaching Podcast. Okay, here is the episode. Art is not
1: immune from racism. Racism pervades all aspects of society, you know? Yes. Yeah. And in art making Mm -hmm. and the art history and what kind of images are we exposed to? What, What kind of images are black children exposed to, you know, throughout their schooling in art, you know? So it was kind of like Mm -hmm. dismantling some of that stuff, too.
2: Being anti-racist in the classroom is about using current events. It's about just talking about people of color and their experiences. You know, when you hear something in the classroom about a stereotypical thing or notion that people have about someone of color, like addressing it in the moment and talking about what was said. So it's about the class culture as much as it is about the content and then culturally responsive teaching. like making sure you have posters in your classroom that represent a spectrum of people, you know, not just dead white men, right? (laughs) And things like that. So it's, it's, you can access it anywhere is what I'm saying. So it doesn't even have to be just through your content. And it does take a lot of courage. And that courage is not easy to
3: come across. It hasn't always been easy for me. This is something we need to be talking about. And this isn't something we should just talk to, you know, high school students or middle school students about. We can talk to elementary school students about this too. You bring yourself into the classroom and
4: the world is there, is present with your students. So th- this needs to be front and center. I think art is such a powerful tool for change. And I think you can, I mean, I was even talking with kindergarten and first graders about that. And they really took to the concept So I think you can talk about that with kids of all ages.
5: We can all think beyond our scope. We have our scope and we have our daily lives and we have our our world that we live in and i think it's so healthy when we can just take a leap mm-hmm. and take a look at something else and flip something upside down and say okay what does that look like upside down yeah you know what does that look like from the back mm-hmm. or from the side you know how can i look at this in a
6: different way when you look at curricula as a whole it's definitely a white center like coming from a white perspective and mm-hmm. i think the more that we show them these inspirational people of color and these heroes and you know i think that can go a long way i just think we have to do much more of it.
2: For the last few years, we have been focusing solely on Black artists because kids in school, if you're lucky enough to still be in a school that has art, you're going to learn about Picasso and Matisse Mm -hmm. and like all of those people. And none of those people have any connection to my kids. And that means my kids don't have any connection to their work. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't want them to look at art and see it as something other, as opposed to the art being something that's inclusive
6: really being critical of art movements and the story that's told of Western art and its supremacy. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, I'm like, hmm, I think
7: I would like to I'd be much more interested in changing that story than teaching it.
8: Teaching art by and about people of the global majority and mm-hmm. allowing those people's own voices to speak not only literally speak through artist statements and videos that you compare with the work, but to speak through the art. So, when mm-hmm. art is about the self or society or the world or about social issues, then you are getting a taste of that person's perspective and that person, mm-hmm. that individual person, not this token of a culture that I'm right. trying to sprinkle onto my class
9: if you're interested in using social justice or uh, any of these kind of practices in your work is really letting the artists speak for themselves Mm -hmm. and then asking your students.
10: So what do you think about that?
9: Show artists who talk about these issues so that it's Mm -hmm. their words being used, not yours.
10: The biggest part of colonization is that Mm -hmm. your humanity is seen. Your humanity Mm -hmm. is known and mm-hmm. it is obvious to all of us, whereas my humanity has to be experienced in order mm-hmm. for it to be real. It's unfortunate that that's how it has to be, but us African-American teachers, us Latino teachers, minority teachers have to be that. And we have to be in these spaces so these kids can see our humanity, mm-hmm. know that we exist in a way that is not negative, and they need to take that on to the next generation and lead with love. I try to be really aware of how mm-hmm.
7: my own way of making art and my aesthetic preferences affect my class. Like I almost give us like an artistic bias, like, okay, that's the bias that I'm bringing to the classroom. I see so much value in number one,
11: holding yourself accountable as a teacher and saying, okay, if I'm going to show 10 artists this year, being intentional about who those 10 people are. Are you representing people of different artist identities? And that includes race, that includes sexual identity, that includes gender and non-binary artists. That can include so many different things, but it really does take intention because if you have grown up in our current and recent past art education system, you, you have learned all of those dead white men and that's what you're going to gravitate towards unless you work against that. We have a responsibility as art teachers to be going out and connecting with living artists that fall into those different identities. We have a responsibility to break down those walls. That falls on us. And when we do that, it's much easier to pass authentic teaching down to our kids.
10: Make your projects centered around what's happening now and then contextualize what's happening now with history. Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're all history teachers. When I think about
5: the art that was in my home and my parents being teachers, they were doing that decolonization, right? Like, they were decentering whiteness. They were like, I got in trouble being like, Columbus is not a nice man, right? I got in trouble at school. So I was <laughs> like, he's not a good person. Like, he has problems. Like, you know, missions are not happy places mm-hmm. in terms of California history, right? Mm-hmm. Or saying without Africa and specifically without certain exhibits that happen, right? People being exhibited, african Masks being exhibited. Like Picasso wouldn't be Picasso, right? Like Guernica could never, you know, the movement of those pieces or the way masks were used, like Cubism itself, right? Like where that comes from. I was lucky to have parents who were trying to, to teach me those things.
6: It's really important for us as educators to share the work of those living artists with our students and especially a diverse range, of them just so they can see themselves in our curriculum and to make the curriculum much more relevant for them. You know, kind of going back to what I said about me sharing my own work with them, you know, when they see artists in San Diego Hmm. Working with these concepts, it makes it much more engaging for the students.
7: If you see someone that looks like you doing a certain thing, whatever that thing may be, it makes that thing more attainable for you in your mind. If you never see someone that looks like you doing something, you may feel like that's not for you to have.
12: Mm -hmm. I'm British Indian so obviously I'm, I'm non-white and I think that's always been a plus for me because I when I go into school I can be a role model because they're not used to having artists coming in who might be from a similar background to them especially something I'm quite passionate about because I like you know being able to give children
11: opportunity to see how they could do something different I also think it's really important to go into my space and acknowledge my whiteness right off the bat because I remember
13: I had a kid who Came up to me and she was like, Hey, miss, you know, I really appreciate you being here. She was an eighth grader. This girl's awesome. I love her. I still talked to her. It was a couple of years ago. And she was like, I got to be honest with you. Like, I didn't trust you at first. And I'm like, Oh, I'm like, that's fine. I'm not going to get offended by that. I was like, Why? What's that rooted in? Right. And she was just like, straight up because you're white. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I completely understand that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that could hurt some people. That could be a lot of questioning for some people. But for me, it was like, how do I continue to build this trust and know these kids are safe in my hands? And we can understand each other, right? We can can learn on a human level while also still acknowledging color. Because I think it's important Mm -hmm. to know that there's a beauty in the difference. And there's a lot of cultural differences. But we can still
14: kind of work together. What's really just important is holding space for students. And what I mean by that is I tend to allow freedom of speaking minds and knowing Mm -hmm. that I don't know everything that they're dealing with, like on a personal level. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had this one student, I don't know, this must have been like 10 years ago, and he was a black student and we were just having a conversation And I was talking about walking around on main street or something like that. And he's like, I don't don't do that. I was like, what what do you mean? You don't do that. He's like, Oh, I can't do that at night. And I was like, and at the time I didn't like, it didn't, you know, 10 years ago didn't really resonate with me at first. And I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, can you tell me more about that? Like, why do you think that? He's like, miss, do you think about how much you're white? He's like, do Mm -hmm. you think about the fact that you're white? And I was like, to be completely honest, I, I, that's not something I normally think about. He's like, miss, I think about, That I'm black every day. And -hmm. that's something that I need to think about when I'm out and about. And I was like, oh man, like can you tell me more about that? And I remember just stopping class because he he was a kid who would not feel bad talking about it to everyone. And -hmm. just kind of holding space for him and, and allowing him to just have his moment of talking about that. And then it facilitates more discussion. And when I have students like that, or even discussions like that, my role is more of like a facilitator and and a question asker. And so Mm -hmm. if I can ask the right questions, and I really want kids to have the dialogue or students to have the dialogue and be able to talk freely amongst themselves, which Mm -hmm. I think has been really beneficial, especially in these times after, you know, the insurrection at the Capitol and having Mm -hmm. good discussions around that. So I think it's just important. Just to hold space, Mm -hmm. allow them to have that talk and have that ability to kind of get their feelings out in a respectful way. It's always Mm -hmm. conversation that's worth having, even if it means like we have to put a little bit on hold whatever we may be drawing in class. I remember when he told me that, when he asked me that question of how much do I think that I, the fact that I'm white. And I was like, Oh man, like that really put it in perspective to me. And mm-hmm. it was one of those times where you're like, wow, this student really just gave me a a lesson today. And I've carried that with me for the last decade. There is, this push for re-examining the canon of artists that you show,
15: right? Yeah. To make it a more anti-racist curriculum. Mm
13: -hmm.
15: However, I feel that there's definitely a difference between multiculturalism and true liberatory education. And it's all well-intended, right? The well-intended re-examination of your curriculum. But just in my opinion, I think multiculturalism... Fails to question what I keep talking about this idea of the power structures in your own classroom. And you'll Mm -hmm. continue to oppress your students and only perpetuate the colonial agenda of control and disempowerment if you just simply think that representation is adequate Mm -hmm. in truly Mm -hmm. changing the system. One of
3: the things that I think is very important is this idea of power in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think humans feel as if they need control.
13: And Mm -hmm
3: people have to ask themselves in every moment, why do I feel the need to control this moment? Why do I feel out of control when someone doesn't react the way I want them to or say what I want them to? What is it in me that needs that? And where can I go to resolve that that is purely about me? Because- Most ways that people try and gain control has a parent trying to gain control of a situation. Sometimes, for example, you have a parent yelling at a kid for not tying their shoes and they're trying to control, oh, tie your shoes, tie your shoes. It's not about the shoes. Maybe you're running late and you have no control of the fact that you're late. So you try and control something else. Now you're just projecting onto something else. And so in terms of whiteness and superiority, what is your why? Why Mm -hmm. do you, as a police officer, need a Black person Mm -hmm. to raise their hands the way that you want at a traffic stop? Why Mm -hmm. do you need them to say yes, ma'am, and no, sir, the way that you want? Why do they have to do that for you? What do you need because Mm -hmm. you're trying to control the situation because of a lack of control somewhere else that needs to be resolved. And so I think, and that's with every power dynamic, it's employer Mm -hmm. and employee, it's parent and child, it's parent and pet child. All of these <laughs> ways that we're just taking teacher. things personally. Oh, yes, teacher yeah. and student. And it, which reminds me, I was shadowing a teacher once and she was wondering why the kids kept running around the classroom. And she kept getting frustrated and she would yell at them mm. and put them in timeout. And then <laughs> she realized that the assistants were also watching the students run. So she went up to the assistants and she said, why are they running? And the assistant said, you're taking long strides. You want them to keep up, but you don't want them to run. So you have to choose which one you want more. Mm -hmm. And that's when she realized by putting them on timeout, she was trying to control their running when all she needed to do is control how fast that she walked. So here Mm -hmm. you have it authority figure trying to gain control of a situation outside of themselves instead of looking internally. Because once you do that, once she did that, the kids were walking normally because they didn't have to run to keep up with her. Your legs are really long. <laughs> what are they supposed to do? They, they want to go to the next lesson. They're trying to listen, but there's so many conflicting things. So, you know, Mm -hmm. control is a big part of a lot of, you know, situations that we find ourselves in. And no one's taught to reflect in the moment and figure out, well, why? Mm
1: -hmm. If you have issues with control, (laughs) if you have
3: issues with control and you like to control everything,
1: you should do some pottery Uh. because it will help you sort of release and relax around the control issues. Yeah. Especially since with pottery, you know, it's a little more difficult to have full control.
15: Your position as a teacher in and of itself can be harmful. And you need to mm-hmm. realize that and think about power. As a teacher, I think you have to break the rules. Because you're you're ultimately the buffer between the, the state and your students. Yes. And you need to be filtering the stuff that is harmful. Mm-hmm. And you need to create more of what is human.
11: Everyone wants to be seen. I mean, that's the same thing with our students. I think they all want to be seen and heard and valued and just know that they have a place in
16: the art room and in school. In the beginning of the semester, we come up with a menu of options and ideas that the kids really want to explore. And we build our curriculum off of the things that the kids are
4: interested in. I love ideas of sit spots with kids and just being in a place and seeing really what's going on with their senses what they're paying attention to
12: how they're connecting with a place and then going Mm -hmm. from there some favorite projects have been looking at the way that seeds disperse and looking at the growth of a seed if we're thinking about that idea of rooting and looking how seeds travel through wind and water and then kind of becoming a metaphor for how do you create space for yourself to grow? How are you naming yourself in a place like this idea of belonging?
7: I try to leave my artwork open for interpretation. And when I'm teaching, I try to leave the floor open for conversation. Let the conversation lead to discoveries and those aha moments that kids need, you know, and that they may not get unless you give them that space To talk through things and, you know, really discover their train of thought and how they process different ideas or concepts.
4: The beat Mm -hmm. of the day is so fast. Yeah. Or it used to be so fast that every minute was planned. Planned, marked, and measured. And I think sometimes that can be detrimental to the creative process. Yeah. I think that absolutely you know, we ask sometimes for benchmarks and assessments. And I think that sometimes we just need to say, you know what, this practice, what we're doing right now, is inherently important Mm -hmm. regardless of what the target is for the day. That we are here and we're working with materials and we're experimenting and Mm -hmm. pushing our voice into the world and building our confidence. And that in and of itself, that is an important and great thing. And that only helps bolster a scholar's education. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, how can building your creative problem solving skills not find itself filtering into other parts of your day? Mm. How can building your confidence in your ideas, in your voice, not filter into other parts of your day.
5: If a student came to me and had an idea that was just a little more outside of the box than I was comfortable with, I would recognize like, oh, I'm not comfortable with this, but why, like what's wrong with this? And I would Mm -hmm. just say to the kid, okay, please go try that. And it was okay. And it was so much better than what the outcome was that I wanted. And I realized that I needed to give the kids mm-hmm. more space to have, mm-hmm. I mean, it's art. it's supposed We're supposed yeah. to give them space. <laughs> yeah. And that was the one thing that I don't remember getting in college.
14: The definition of a mistake is challenging because for most of us in art, that's what the beauty is. It's mm-hmm. the nuance.
7: I love teaching on a platform of failure and my kids, are, when they hear the word failure as the very, these kids are awesome and they're doing great work and they're very high achieving and they hear the word failure and it's automatically like a worst case scenario. Trying to shift their minds to think about failure as an opportunity is Really, one of the best challenges I have as a teacher, and I think that's a role that I'm really grateful that I get to play. And sort of teasing out and playing with that idea of really the word failure, which in academia or in school I think is a really scary thing for parents to hear, mm-hmm. administrators to hear, kids to hear. But I sit inside of it, and I love it because you know I do it every single day. I do it as a parent. I do it as a teacher. I do it, you know, as a partner. And mm-hmm. what is to be gained from something? not working out the way we thought it would. You know, the best art I've ever made has happened because of an accident.
9: If your student respects you, they're going to respect the content that you're bringing towards them. And they're going to think about it more if they trust Mm -hmm. you, especially. And if you make it known that the art room is a safe place for you to be Mm -hmm. vulnerable and for you to explore these ideas, you know, even if you don't understand them.
8: The culture of whiteness in our schools is the culture of preparing people for the American workforce. So, one big part of decentering whiteness in your art classroom, I think, is just ignoring that mandate completely, Mm -hmm. like don't care if kids are late, let Mm. kids turn in late work, let them be their whole selves in the classroom, let them speak out of turn, let them be equal partners in the learning, let them choose what you should cover in your curriculum this year.
11: Mm.
8: Just find ways to break any of the expectations in your classroom that feel in the least bit oppressive.
9: Before you do any of this sort of work, you need to first build relationships with your students. If you're going to have a thread of social justice or any sort of race theory or anti-racism in your classroom, the very first thing you have to do is know your students. You have to build relationships mm-hmm. with each and every one of them. It can't be a passive thing.
5: A yoga teacher would never send you away like, oh, you can't touch your toes? Well, come back to me when you can. Huh. So like an art teacher, you're not an artist because you can't draw a straight line or whatever. Right. Huh. Uh, we just take it from where you are, yeah. and then we go from there.
1: You have to be ready to learn more when it comes to students as people.
4: This is just who I am. And you know, when you fake
3: it, the kids can tell.
15: Obviously you work up to that with co-creating a community.
3: Mm -hmm. You know, a
15: lot of the work I do is on the basis of the relationship that I create with my students, as well as the environment and container that it's withheld in. It starts being
5: collaborative. And I keep coming back to that. Like we are in community together. They are equally artists as much as I am. And I need Mm -hmm. to pause and allow them to lead me as well. Right. It's like that give and take.
9: We had these conversations for a good two weeks before it led up to an art making project. Mm. And I felt like those discussions, they were so powerful and everything that my students said, they were just so thoughtful and willing to learn and willing to see all sides of the picture. We also kind of stage it at the beginning now where I mentioned that you might not agree with everything, but let's... Agree to disagree sometimes and let's just be respectful of each other and different opinions and we might learn Mm. something from each other.
17: When our students and when people are making work about identity, you listen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When my <laughs> students share work about themselves, I'm not critiquing them. I am looking at the materials, or I'm asking questions, and you're pushing them, and you know, making connections and relating and sharing other artists that maybe they would connect with. And right. yeah, it's so important to ask them because what you think is the best lesson,
5: right? Like, it comes back to that. Like, what you think your best lesson is, and often what they think the
17: best lessons are very two different things. Feedback has been really important. So getting feedback just like, how do you think that lesson went? What would you change about this semester? But also saying like, what was your favorite memory? And then students are thinking, and that's really helpful information too. Cause it's like, oh, I didn't, I, I guess we should bring in more guest artists because 19 out of 20 students said that was their favorite class of the whole semester. And I know Flavia does those feedback surveys too. And it, it's, I didn't do that my first few years teaching and it's really helpful.
5: Being in community with our students, remembering your student inside that space too
17: the hope is with doing this work, on ourselves and thinking about that is that we can then maybe empower our students to have those conversations when they're hopefully not but when they are inevitably in a position like you were in and able to say like this is about me are you asking about me are you asking about my work or what what's making you uncomfortable here and it's you know I think imagining my 18 year old self having a conversation like that is laughable but I'm hoping that having these conversations as like a 12 year olds will empower them in the future. Okay
18: another thing that's really important and this is for all teachers not just art teachers but paying attention to mm-hmm. discipline and right. who is getting called out more often who is getting you know reminders about their bodies or their voices or how they're using materials because there's so many disparities between suspensions and things like that and I think that can definitely happen in the art room too and I think that's a really hard one when you have to really like retrain yourself or Like think about, okay, what is actually problematic about so-and-so's behavior? Is it actually a problem or is it just not the way that we have been taught to think is okay? Right. Because I think sometimes the default defensive answer can be like, well, some of these kids really are acting out more having behavior problems more often but I think we really need to look and say well is it just that they were talking too loud or is it just that they were you know needing to move their bodies more whatever it may be just kind of reframing that
0: right absolutely recognizing when it's a cultural bias versus an actual disruptive behavior that's actually a problem which I think is is rare yeah you know
13: and
0: then I was Talking about the same thing with another artist recently, and the idea that who deems what is appropriate and what is not, what is disruptive and what is not.
18: Definitely. And that's why I think it's important as a class. And it can be kind of exhausting to do this at the beginning of the year when you have so many classes, but Mm -hmm. as a class, trying to set norms for your art class so that you get input from the students. Because if it, every artist is different, like I would prefer a quiet working environment with maybe music or a podcast, but a lot of kids prefer it to be more loud and social, talking to each other, walking around maybe. And so kind of getting their input on that and coming up with an agreement so that they can be held accountable like, to each other, not just to one white person as the authority in the room.
15: I think the system uses assessment to inflict violence and harm hmm. on students. Yes, you know that I mean, an F will stay with you on your transcript, right? And and that is a way a legal document. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, it may be taking this to the extreme, or maybe it isn't. But that's the way in which I see teachers moving like cops. Mm
0: -hmm.
15: It's through assessment and discipline. Mm
0: -hmm.
15: These systems that we create within our field are ways in which we assign judgment right? And I've had conversations with students talking about grades, and a lot of them speak to the idea of self-worth being tied to a letter grade or a score. A step, I think, towards the right direction would be through standards-based grading, where you are taking out participation grades, Mm. grades of behavior, grades for compliance. Mm. You know, did you just do the thing because a lot of the times you don't understand the barriers or obstacles that could prevent the student from doing the thing, mm. whether it's a parent signature on a syllabus
3: or otherwise. I think our kids are pushed so hard in school. Even the little babies, the little kindergartners, they have so much they have to perform. Right. That it's it's a huge motivator for me to make sure that they have a a safe space in their art room where they can just be themselves, they can experiment. They don't have to perform. These pressures, you know, they just kind of get to to realize the relaxing quality that can be in art. As teachers, if we
15: want to see systemic change happen at large levels we need to start with the micro mm-hmm. right trust your students think about and have some sort of i guess metacognition as to what's happening
10: in your class
15: and have your students question it too mm-hmm.
10: Mm-hmm. you need the ask you need to integrate the ask and i keep tell you that
0: mm-hmm.
10: if your learners are not really responding wholeheartedly to what you're giving them, it means something is missing.
2: If we focus like in terms of the weight of distribution of knowledge and teaching as social, emotional, empathy, and knowledge of culture and others, and then we're like, but here's also a color wheel. (laughs) Or here's also how you do matrices. I really think we would
3: be better people.
2: I always think of teaching as like, I'm helping to cultivate a person who's going to be in a car one day, and they're going to be driving next to somebody else who's in a car. How are they going to share that road? How are they going to interact with those people? Are they going to be self-centered, self-serving? I really think we just need to prepare people to get into a car on a road. And I know that sounds really weird, but like to live life. And how are they going to engage with others and spaces in the world? Are they going to do it with empathy, compassion, love? Or are they just going to care about themselves and their desires, their wants, and and who cares about everybody else and how my actions Mm. are going to impact others? everybody has story to tell.
1: And it's it's a matter of getting those out. And I think even, you know, art with children, art with adults, and just generally, it's all about the story. It's about the narrative. And, you know, the, yeah. the political side of that being who gets to tell your story and, you know, who, who gets to tell the stories. Right. And I think that mm-hmm. comes down to like the whole race thing also that Who's going to tell yeah. our stories? And we want to be able to tell our stories. Right. Everybody wants to tell their own story, you know?
0: Yeah. And everybody should
11: get to.
1: Yeah. And not being dictated to yeah. by the overarching story that's put out there. It's the stories that make people human. And I think the whole thing about racism mm-hmm. is that it dehumanizes. It makes you less than a person. You know, you're just this stereotype. So I think you can start basically with creating visual narratives or, you know, written narratives about who you are. Yeah. And like if you had a chance to tell the world who you are, what would you say? What, what would you say?
2: It's so painful for people to say to you, like, you don't get to share who you are. Right. Nope. You know, like, you don't get to share your experiences. You don't get to share your stories. You don't get to honor people who have sacrificed so much to give you the life you have.
6: I mean, stories are so powerful. I think they're the most effective way to persuade anybody to change their way of thinking, you know.
8: Focusing on empowering students with stories of power, resilience, resistance, and not to reduce Black, Indigenous, people of color to struggle, because that's not their sole experience or existence.
2: Brown and Black people are everyday people just living this life and doing the best we can like everybody else.
10: I'm their first experience with an actual Black person in real life. You know what I mean? I'm a lot of parents' first experience with a black person in real life. (sighs) You know, and I'm not like this. I may look a certain way, but I'm not like this rough and gruff, violent human being. I'm a whole entire person with complexities. I'm silly. I'll sing. Mm -hmm. I I walk around camp with a tutu on.
12: I I needed to be around people who look like me. I was the first in my family to be born in the States. So uh-huh. it was a struggle because, you know, we had a different language at home. My parents came from the Philippines, though they spoke mm-hmm. en- English and Philippine and Tagalog. But mm-hmm. I didn't know the difference between the two. We would just interchange the two because that's how right. it is. And when I was growing up in the 70s, the teachers, sometimes I would use words they didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And they thought that was holding me back. And one day I needed to throw up and I didn't know the English word. And uh. I told the teacher that <laughs> she didn't understand. <laughs> (laughs) And so I threw up. And then, you know, it was a big mess. And then they Uh, told my parents to stop speaking to me in Tagalog. They said... Oh, no. Yeah, which was so terrible. So now I can only understand it from hearing it, but I can't speak it anymore because I was forbidden to speak it
4: anymore
12: (laughs) but I think it really made me not like school at all you know I had this Mm -hmm. culture at school and I had this different culture at home and Mm -hmm. and I was like kind of the go-between because my poor parents you know they were Mm -hmm. completely new to the country too they might be little people but they have feelings and they care and they worry and Mm -hmm. they're dealing with stuff just like we as adults are dealing with
5: once I started giving myself grace About my weaknesses Mm -hmm. and letting people know up front that, you know, I am dyslexic, but I can function just like anyone else just give me a chance and there's also things that i can see more clearly because of the deficit in one area there are heightened things in other areas
11: we don't have to be in these tight little boxes anymore and in fact none of us actually fit in those boxes and if we can have these tools and and you know some guidance and encouragement to start to take things in new directions and see what else we're
5: capable of i mean it's just endless What's possible? I feel like I'm growing so much. It's painful, right? Growth is painful. It is not, you know, like metamorphosis. (laughs)
8: not just the content but also the style and the way you're presenting your teaching and your interactions in the classroom because we're like swimming in this society that is upholding white supremacy right and and colonialist values and so that's like seeping into our brains our students brains and so we, we should be questioning why do I feel this way like why do I think that and really I mean, I have to do it all the time. Like, wait, is that a fact or is this a false narrative that I have just been taught so many times
4: over and over? And so I think that that is a lot of the work I really want to see teachers doing. I've actually realized that when I was in my early 20s and I first started teaching out of grad school, I was teaching in a very kind of traditional way. And even though I had studied so many different artists and my graduate program was amazing, I sort of reverted back to teaching the way that I had been taught growing up. Mm -hmm. And after teaching in that way for a few years, my whole perception of teaching, everything just started to shift for me. And I started to become very passionate about teaching about contemporary artists and artists of color and really changing my approach and teaching in a more progressive way, even with how I was interacting with the kids. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting to look back and see, you know, where I started and and where I'm at now. It's good to have teachers who hated
12: school on staff because Mm -hmm. so many don't have that perspective. They don't understand that perspective of the students who hate school. And I do. So it kind of helps to bring some empathy or some understanding into the team. And I I think that's always been my mission is to help kids who are like me, who really struggled. and, And I was really way below grade level. I was always like in the remedial reading class, but it was not because I... I, at the time, I thought, you know, I'm just dumb, and I'm more. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I don't learn the way everyone else, and I felt really stupid. But oh. I just realized that, you know, I was in a Catholic school, and it was very rote and very boring, basically. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, like, it's now my mission to make you know school interest that's why I want to integrate the arts at schools all over the world now where I-, I can help kids who are like me who really struggle with the traditional way of learning
13: I don't know I was thinking a lot about access and mm-hmm. the way that like I hadn't I'm gonna be completely honest like I grew up in LA but I don't think I went to LACMA until maybe I was like a junior or senior in high school right and I don't I don't even think I knew what LACMA was. I knew about like the stuff at Expo Park because I grew up a couple blocks away. But I I didn't know anything about LACMA. I don't think I found out about Mocha until like a portfolio event that was held there where my art teacher was like, you need to go to this thing. And then a lot of the things that exist now, they didn't then. Right. So I was like, thinking about students need to, one, be aware, students and their parents need to be one, like aware that these places exist, but also... I think it's more nuanced than just a being like, hey, come over here, you know, like we need to figure out ways where folks can feel welcomed and invited and these faces that they're, belong to them,
5: right? When I was thinking of inclusion, I was thinking from uh, different aspects of equity, but I wasn't thinking about abilities the same way.
16: What we found the most helpful is essentially to work backwards. And when I say work backwards, you know, what we would do is we'd figure out exactly what we wanted the kids to learn, you know, what skill we wanted them to acquire Mm -hmm. and come up with a project or an outcome and then scale it, but think exactly, okay, if they have fine motor needs and I want them to, you know, learn this particular drawing technique, do I need to use modified tools? like, you know, their special scissors, their pencil grips, do I need to create a tracer in order for them to be independent? And the goal is to have the kids be as independent as possible. But you just find ways Mm -hmm. to get to that outcome, just from thinking through all of the steps, and where they might have a need. And the other the other big limitation, I think that Teachers don't necessarily anticipate until they're in the moment and finding things. I mean, we've all had those moments where you think you've got this great idea and then it sort of like falls apart. It's really limiting the downtime, the time in between and the time that, you know, the teacher spends talking at the students. If you can really pare that down as much as possible. Through structure and support, the fluidity of the lesson and the amount of interest Mm -hmm. and access almost always rises. How we ask a question is so important for our
5: students, or how we pose something, or the directive.
18: In order to create an anti
13: racist environment, you have to actively be anti racist in your life. Mm-hmm. There isn't a curriculum to follow, there isn't a formula to follow, there isn't a checklist to follow. This work has to be embedded into your everyday life, and it has to be something that you do.
9: Mm-hmm.
13: Because the kids know.
9: Just because I am someone of color doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that I, that I have the answers. So I right. needed to. I definitely needed to stop and do some research on my own end and analyze the things that I've been doing. I mean, self-reflection is so important mm-hmm. as a teacher or, you know, just for people in general. But so I had to take some time back and understand, like, what have I done in the past? What things would I need mm-hmm. to change? Because while we were holding everybody else accountable of these things, I wanted to make sure that I was doing the best that I can do for my students as well.
6: A lot of them have never had these conversations. So they feel kind of entry level in a way, mm-hmm. but I think it plants that seed. So then when we get to other courses in my program, or when they go into other courses at the university level, they're not afraid to bring up these topics. They're not afraid to react to things. Mm-hmm. They're more empathic when they encounter somebody that has experienced life differently than them.
2: Mm-hmm. So I have become a lot more careful in how I word what I say. I really cannot say Black Lives Matter in my classroom, Mm. you know, but I can teach Black Lives Matter. Mm. And it's unfortunate. I hear myself saying these things and I wish I didn't have to. Right. And yeah, it almost feels cowardice. But as I see it, I'm looking at the big picture, which is that I would like to teach an anti-racist curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I want my kids to have a well-rounded idea of the human experience. And in order to do that, I want to continue to have my job and be able to do that without pushback, you know? So right. I've become a wordsmith over the years mm-hmm. and really tried to navigate and figure out how to engage students in those discussions. Mm-hmm. And the big one, and we've talked about this in the podcast with anti-racist art teachers, is using the artist voice as everything, mm-hmm. right? And that has to be the springboard.
6: There's risks in me talking about some of this stuff sometimes, mm-hmm. but I feel like I need to have courage and just present, you know, these are the experiences that these artists are reacting to. This is what they want you to know about the story uh, this is the context that maybe you're not seeing because you live in Cookville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, and you're not. From where they're from.
5: I want someone to lean into discomfort and feel comfortable in the discomfort, right? To feel comfortable being like, I'm going to be uncomfortable for a moment, but this is going to be this huge growth experience.
12: My art making helps my teaching uh, because I kind of implement what I believe in my teaching from my personal experience. I think every child is an artist in their own way, and Mm -hmm. if given the right guidance and opportunity, they will discover their creative world definitely and experience the Mm -hmm. joy of making art. You know, if people can have more empathy, you know, not just for a black body, but just for the human race, you know, if you can just begin Mm -hmm. to to do it for the human race and just understand that's what the humanity is. I put the word black in it because, you know, we're the ones that are most targeted. But, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody can can tap into their own humanity and see, Okay, I can actually, I may not be the best (laughs) human being right now, but I can do better. I need to do better. And hopefully that will be the takeaway Way for a vast majority of the people. That's what we want. Education is what's left after the information is gone. It's the feeling that you're left with. Mm. That's the part that endures and that allows you to carry your
3: education on through adulthood. Come back as a flower is literally how I want to live my life. Mm. No matter what happens, I can come back as a flower. And the fact that it is not only speaking to my interest in gardening, but speaking to the essential nature of art of this song Mm. is the reason why I felt whole enough to believe that that flower would come back and believe that
11: Mm.
3: people aren't lost causes and that someone who was raised in a racist society will not always be racist. Mm -hmm. And someone who is homophobic is mostly just scared of something and doesn't mean that they're unworthy of being loved. Like You can come back as a flower and you can come back softer and stronger and those two things can coexist. That soft fragility and that strength, those are all things that can coexist. And with art, you can explore that in very meaningful ways where you're not performing this socialized version of you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you.